This episode of the Media Leader Podcast was edited by a production partner, Trisonic, a results-focused agency that plans and buys all audio media. Check them out at trisonic.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Omar Oaks. And yes, it's a new year. It's very exciting indeed. Isn't it amazing, by the way, how something as arbitrary as the number of what year it is has such an effect on our mood? Because as editor-in-chief of the Media Leader, I'm super optimistic about the year ahead and the prospects for media and advertising. Well, it couldn't be worse than last year, could it? Well, maybe. Let's see. Today's guest is going to help us answer that question. Richard Pinder is one of advertising and media's legit movers and shakers. He has spent over 30 years in various roles across the industry and has led businesses in the UK, Asia and EMEA. He spent five of those years as Chief Operating Officer at Publicis Group, where he helped the then CEO Maurice Levy try to break America and digitally transform. Oh, we've got to get into that. Um, And has helped build or helped build startups such as the ad network The House Worldwide and Universum, an employer branding company that sold to Axel Springer. Uh, Axel Springer, which has done a deal with AI. Maybe we'll get into that as well. Um, He now runs Rankin Creative, named after the very famous photographer. And we're going to talk about what he's doing with that agency too. So not only does Richard know a lot about the industry, but he knows specifically a lot about what might happen this year in terms of merger, acquisition activity, what's going on in the economy and other areas of business that will affect media and advertising. Richard, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you, Anna. Happy New Year. So let's get straight into it. What's your big prediction for 2024? Oh, I think 2024 is the year that everything gets real. Shit gets real when you've got 100% of uh, GDP as the debt of the country, when everyone's mortgage suddenly really does go to the right level. They've talked about it, they've heard about it, but it hasn't happened to them yet. When uh, we have to face the elections in the US and in other places, when we have a lot of really big things happening and we can no longer sit around and talk about what might be and all this cool stuff. It actually is going to get real. We've just got to get on with life as it is. You know, we've got two wars going on, could be a third soon. Who knows? We've just got to get on with it. And I think it's, um, I've seen a lot in this industry of everyone talking about what could come and now it's just like, get on with it. And what do you feel like, I mean, has that been because to your point about interest rates, the last 10, 12 years after the crash, we've been in this historically very strange situation where we, in the UK, in the US, we had very, very low interest rates. So the debt became quite cheap. You had a lot of tech companies who, I guess, able to promise that they can do this, that, and the other without needing to deliver. But now interest rates are going up. Well, every every client we work with has a return on capital requirement. And that obviously changes dramatically when you're at interest rates three, four, five, six X, what they were when you started the conversation. So investment in media, investment in marketing, investment in brand, are all investments, they all require money. And the pressure is going to be on the businesses. So we will see how people respond, but you can see some real big dramatic shifts in some quite important categories out there. The auto sector, the luxury sector, they're seeing big shifts suddenly. Um, and they and, and that shift's really getting real in 2024, I think. And okay, specific, let's talk auto. So what do you think is going to happen with cars? Well, essentially, I don't think the world's really spotted, but the Chinese um, are in such a strong position, it uh, doesn't even bear thinking about. You know, the German discourse at the moment is makes our sense of who we are in the UK feel positive. 
you know, the, the, the whole economy of Germany and the Mittelstand in Germany is built on the auto sector and having a premier position in that sector. And yet the prognosis is not good. Uh, the Chinese can produce cars for 25, 30% less. Um, and they're much better at building electric cars than the German guys are, who are starting to learn. So even on that one simple piece, you can see a huge tectonic plate shift coming, which is going to affect an awful lot of different aspects of things. Um, you know, and you look at a company like Gili, they're now a major shareholder in Mercedes-Benz, they're a major shareholder in Volvo, they're a major shareholder in Lotus, they're a shareholder in Aston Martin and rumored to be buying the rest of it. These guys we hadn't really heard of a little while ago. So that shift is very profound, and we're going to see a lot more of it, I think. Mm. And specifically for media and advertising, we, start, we, we ended the year with apparent talks between Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount's possibly doing exactly. a mega merger, both media owners, mix of legacy and digital with quite big amounts of debt. So you can see the wheels turning who knows whether it's actually going to happen? I mean, firstly, do you think a deal like that will happen? More generally, what do you think is going to happen? I think we'll see a lot more of that because if you've got debt at the level you've had to get to to buy the audiences that people wanted to buy in whatever sector, um, and, and it's whether it's a media company or a company that uses media to sell what it sells, that level of debt is unsustainable unless they can drive real profitable growth. And most of them are taking the Amazon model, which is buy the audience, and then work out the pricing later. And I'm not sure they were structured to do that. You know, Jeff Bezos took his shareholders on a long 20-year journey to get there. I'm not sure that's the conversation that Disney had with its shareholders or these German car companies had with theirs. So whichever business you're in, that level of debt and that purchasing of the customer effectively is going to come back and bite you this year. So people are really needing to step up into what is genuinely a profitable place to play and how are they going to engage the audience properly that way. Yeah, it's it's just a remarkable situation. You talk about um, Jeff Bezos where he almost trained investors to believe in Jam Tomorrow. I mean, the, the retail business, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the retail business of Amazon still doesn't make money. It's still loss-making. You know, they make most of their money from cloud services and um, entertainment. How, how does that happen? I mean, you've, you've, you've sold businesses, you've talked to investors, you know what people are looking for when they're looking for value. How does that happen when you've got a whole seemingly digital media tech industry, which is essentially able to adopt that sort of model? Well, I think he started in a very particular way and he started in a very, uh, he was extremely good at setting expectations if you look through the history. Um, and he acted like a man who was starting out every single day. They talk about day one, the, the the headquarters building is called day one because day two is stasis. So day one, you know, he, he, when he was worth 10 billion, he was driving a 10 year old Honda. He wanted that day one mentality. I don't think very many companies start that way or even their CEOs want to live that way. And I think actually almost the opposite is now happening, which is that all these stories of, oh, don't you worry, build it and they will come. It is off the table. There's just no way people can sustain that. Yeah. When interest rates are you're paying 0.05%. Was it matter to buy it using shareholder funds or debt? When interest rates are six, seven percent and inflation is okay, still there quite substantially, if and if not where it was, these numbers change those uh, those calculations pretty uh, heavily. I think one of the things they do do, interestingly, is help cash generative businesses reveal their value. So interestingly, the advertising and media worlds that haven't got themselves into too much debt. Are highly cash generative, quite low capital users, 
quite interesting businesses for private equity and people to come into. So we might see some interesting shifts in investors into our sector because we're low capital users and high cash generators. And specifically, so what businesses do you think might be quite interesting? Well, if I were, uh, I mean, I, I would never want to go head to head with Sir Martin on any topic, having having done so and having worked for him and competed with him. Uh, and I respect him enormously, but Media Monk's share price does lead people that I've been in meetings with to talk about that being an opportunity. Certainly last time I looked, it was 5 to 10% of mm. the peak. If you look at what's happening with Vivendi and the discussion about would they be better off realizing the value of Havas outside of that organization, doesn't surprise me. Um, you look at even the other holding companies, uh, Publicis, where I spend a bit of my time in the past, has really got all of its value out of the acquisitions that haven't been creative or media. You know, they've been digital and data. So that creates some quite interesting dynamics in terms of do you keep, do you sell? Would other people be interested in investing? Because cash generative, low capital use businesses are quite interesting in high cost of debt scenarios. Mm. And what do you think that means for, I guess, the advertiser when all this shakes out? Is it generally better or worse for the advertiser in terms <laughs> of there being, because I think in terms of, you know, if there's more consolidation, that means there are fewer choices. That means there's the opportunity for people to put up prices on advertisers. Um, is it, do you generally seeing it being a less competitive landscape going forward as well, there's yeah. more consolidation? I mean, I'm not, I'm not a media buyer, so I don't have the precise data on on the pieces, but I think we can see very clearly that there is already a, not a monopoly, a duopoly of of the high-level tech ad purchase or ad sales situation. So forget the advertising industry holding companies, they're sort of bit part players compared to the big tech firms and their ability to garner extraordinary audiences. You know, we've all seen the YouTuber who we've discovered when they were going from 10,000 to 100,000, they already hit a million. You know, that growth we haven't seen in linear television in three decades mm. so there's media properties being built every day that are very high value by those people so i don't think this changes that very much and, I, and whether vivendi sell have us and someone else does a deal i'm not sure that's really going to affect our, our clients i think advertisers have a, have a very different conversation they've seen that programmatic has had the balloon burst on it whichever data you look at it looks like more than half of Lord Leverhulme's money is being wasted on programmatic when you look at the data. So the idea of great storytelling, the idea of engaging audiences is going to start to see, I think, a lot more traction again, because there was a time when clients under pressure would be forced into the data says. Now they have to balance, well, that data says, but my gut says, and actually the combo, along with an engaging story, and we can tell that, back to the YouTube conversation, most of those YouTubers are not data analytic freaks. They use the data to learn what their audience wants to see, and they exponentially grow that audience by using that data. Isn't that what we should all be doing? Telling the right story using the data to help, not start with the data. Mm. Uh, and this is where your your current role becomes yeah. interesting. So you run this um, this ad agency, if I can be reductive and call it that, ad agency ranking. I think it's a new, a new version of what that might be, yes. I mean, you know, the, the A word has lost some of its luster, even, <laughs> even if I think I spent most of my career. Yeah, bear, bear with me, I'm a, I'm a lazy journalist, I like to put labels on everything. So you, you run this agency, Ranking Creative. And so um, you mentioned um, Vivendi as well. So I, I recently interviewed um, the boss, Yannick Bolleray, at our Future of Media conference. It's um, it's on a 
previous we put it into a podcast episode the media leader podcast listeners can search for that and so um i was i was giving him a hard time about advertising so they bought this this agency uncommon which has been one of the rare success stories i guess in terms of creative advertising in the uk the last few years and they've sold to have asked for a reported 90 million i think it was and so i was giving a, a bit of a hard time over that in terms of why are you why are you spending all this money on an ad agency when i bet if you let me look at your books a lot of the growth is coming from as you said about publicists the media and digital side um so you run an ad agency tell me why i'm wrong tell me where the value comes from just everything I, I, think you said it's advertising. I think it's and and i think uh if you if he was buying nine billion of creative agencies your point would be 100 percent correct you know why are you doing that when most of the most of the money should sit in where the where the sort of longevity of relationships are, where it's objective, not subjective. Where you know there's a lot of advantages in owning a data analytics business versus something where the assets go up and down in the elevator and they come in and out of fashion. But because of that, tell me which of those major holding companies now have real shining jewels in their crown of people who can tell these stories, who mm. can engage audiences, who can bring people on a journey, who can understand culture. And Uncommon, to be honest, haven't followed a particularly original model. I don't mean that in any disrespect at all. They've done an extraordinarily good job. But it is a model that is well-trodden, which is create something special that people find attractive in terms of the way they go and tell their stories for brands. And, and you know, the market follows, and for Yannick to have a piece of that at a relatively modest price, because whatever the value, it'll be somewhere between 50 and 150, depending on how well they do, probably, right? There'll be some mechanism both up and down on the scale. Uh, it'll throw off a lot of cash, and he will have something at the end as well. And most of those acquisitions, I was involved in quite a lot myself in my past, they pay back very, very well, particularly when debt was cheaper, obviously a bit harder now, but they pay back very well. Cash-generative businesses, you end up the earnout normally pays out within to the acquirer within five or six years. And normally you keep the people for three to five of the years and you keep most of the business for seven or eight. Do the mm. maths, you do well. Mm. So from our point of view, our business is exactly that principle of believing that 75 people in Kentish Town can actually solve pretty much any culturally engaging business problem that you might have anywhere in the world. You know, we launched the Mercedes SL two years ago globally the biggest launch Mercedes did in the year. I can't remember a time when 75 people in Kentish Town could have done that. If you go back in history, you needed a network, you needed people everywhere, you needed, right? But you now have people who can converse with the CEO of Mercedes-Benz, a crew who can come up with an amazing idea, a production team who can deliver it all in one building. That's actually really cheap. Whatever that costs, that's super cheap. If you've then got the data analytics and all the rest of it to, to spread. So that's the reason we're doing what we're doing. We think that's pretty cool. That's why he bought Uncommon, and that's why businesses like ours and theirs will always be of interest to the market. And where does the you talk about the cost? I mean, where does the the, the value really come from nowadays? So, I think a lot of people, maybe not listeners of this podcast, but a lot of people out there will think of advertising as the you know the Don Draper you know kind of model where some creative genius is just able to talk to a marketer about their problems for five minutes and come up with a great slogan or yeah. whatever the asset is i mean where does the value nowadays mm. come from in terms of what you're doing for mercedes and other clients yeah you see if you back in those days uh the agency guys did know more than the clients the clients had very little data and information they were often not very well trained and the agency guys were all of that 
They had all the information, they had all of the data, media and, and creative were interlinked, so they had that access. Now in a very different place, what we think we sell that's unique is that um, Rankin himself is clearly a cultural icon. His ability just to sense what's on the cusp is high, but we back it up because we're publishers. He's a major shareholder in Dazed. We publish Hunger. These are publications that require you to be right on the edge of what's coming. Not, not in some superficial future, but in the next few months. So you know who we should be featuring. You know what stories are needing to be told. We have thousands of people coming through the door every year, famous and not so famous, to be photographed and filmed, which in an agency is gold dust, because you're just filtering like a big fish swimming through the water. You're filtering what's going on in culture. And a lot of brands now, I can't think of any brand really in any category, apart from perhaps washing up liquid and detergent, where being culturally irrelevant is actually a good thing. <laughs> All right. So when people say, why do I need to be culturally irrelevant? It's like, because you don't want to not be, right? You know, you don't want to be in a category that's going out of fashion. You don't want to be a brand that has lost its luster. So we think coming and having a conversation about cultural connection and how you build that connection is where we can add value. We don't pretend to know the category better than those guys. In fact, we almost come in and say, look, we don't really know your category, but we understand culture and we see how your category and your brand is fitting in culture and where the, the miss is. Should we talk about that? And we do it humbly, but we will point that out. We'll go, the elephant in the room is this. Are you ready to have that discussion? If you are, you can do something really cool. I find this really fascinating, actually, when you when you talk about your USP and the connection to Rankin himself and being plugged into culture and how that can be really valuable for brands. Because a lot of the conversations we have with, whether it's media salespeople, media strategists, we always come back to this idea about audience fragmentation. And whether, you know, I, um, we had John Hegarty at Future of Brands last year, and he yeah. was talking about the, the importance of the big idea still matters. And I challenged him on this and said, well, how can you when audiences are increasingly more fragmented? Um, and he, he's still a big believer in that. So I put that to you, despite, you know, you mentioned YouTube before, and lots of people are consuming TikTok and not necessarily involved in whatever's going on on the telly or on radio. So when you have that fragmentation it must be harder than ever to be tapped into whatever the zeitgeist, the culture is. I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to uh, pick a disagreement with Sir John, who I've known since I was 18, because I went to interview him when I was 18 and working for a car magazine oh, um, really? on his Audi campaign when they just started BBH. So I have, and, and we got to know each other well when Leah Burnett was a shareholder of BBH when I was uh, on the Leah Burnett board. I suspect if he were here, he would defend that the big idea isn't a big ad. The big idea is a notion that yeah. engages people. Yeah. And I think that's where we would find huge agreement. Um, I think the days when it was a a singular piece of content that everyone went and saw, that's gone. Went a long time ago, I think. There might be the odd exception still out there, but then that's the point about life. Exceptions prove the rule. I think what we definitely see, though, with fragmentation is that culture is unifying in many ways. So you see what is exactly coming, what people are now talking about, what people are relating to, how are they connecting with that? And you can therefore broaden and engage a very large trench of the right audience. And particularly nowadays, the right audience isn't necessarily a top-down trickle. It can be a younger group who inform the older generations, almost reverse osmosis of, of comms. 
And we find that a very powerful tool. So, you know, for example, well, I remember when in the middle of COVID, we um, we had to do something for Royal London, the British insurer, and um, all the plans went out the window because COVID came and the actuaries couldn't support half the claims. But one of their incredible claims to fame is that they were pretty much universally Britain's leading providers of funeral plans for low-income groups to avoid funeral poverty, basically which gave them a huge right and being a mutual, a huge position, we felt, in the ability to talk about death at a time when, for the first time in 100 years, society in the UK was talking about death more than sex. And we thought, how interesting would it be to talk about death? Now, you don't do an ad campaign about that, but we did an exhibition of people who had lost loved ones, sometimes through COVID, through other reasons, some famous, some not, and then put a book out, How to Die Well. And that combination got 400 pieces of TV print, all aspects of social media in the space of a week. Huge impact, which is the cost of the campaign compared to the impact Mm. out of of them. Now, that is a culturally connecting, culturally understanding thing that was highly unifying because you understood exactly what was going on in culture and you tap into it. Quite a risky one, but the risk was mitigated by understanding where culture was going. To me, that is exactly what you should do now, and therefore it doesn't matter where all the audiences are. If you unify on culture, you'll find the audience. What do you think is likely to happen specifically with private equity this year? And one of the columns I wrote towards the end of last year was I thought that private equity is something we need to watch really carefully because private equity, when you look at it, you take a step back. It's actually quite big positions across media and advertising nowadays and you know, talk about interest rates going up and the impact. I mean, do you expect to see a lot of activity and how so? I think it's a really good question. Uh, I remember when I left Publicis, one of um, my first sets of meetings was uh, with a lot of private equity firms. And back then, and even probably five years later, actually, when I also had other conversations, there was quite a strong reticence to be involved in business where the assets were low, the capital was low, but they understand capital, they don't understand people, um, and they didn't know how to engage with with folk. Um I think what's flipped it is two things. One is a, a dearth of things to invest in. So there's a huge amount of capital and nowhere so to put it. The scrape of the barrel that comes to me now. Well, well, that's one way of putting it. I think what it means is they review, they review their lenses they view things through. But I think particularly what I started out earlier talking about, the cash generative nature of a business like ours, which has a which can easily lose money if you screw them up, by the way. <laughs> but if you get them in the right place and the clients are coming, you can price competitively and deliver a decent return on a low capital base. So that cash generative nature is particularly interesting in a high interest rate environment when your business model is to buy things with debt. Because that's the PE model, right? They put down a bit, they borrow the rest, and you have to pay off the debt as fast as possible and give them back a very high multiple to their investment, not necessarily to the total price. And you need cash generation to do that. And uh, Publicis was the best, I think, of all the holding companies at cash generation. We were all focused on it. And it's one of the reasons why they could do all these huge acquisitions and pay them back so fast. Um, And private equity has spotted now that thing. So I think private equity will get more and more interested in what we've got. And could that be as big as getting involved in taking a big position in a major holding company? I think it could be, yeah. Because their their value equations, I mean, if you look at... um, side of publicists at the moment, WPP, I think Omnicom as well, but we'd have to have another look today because they, they move around so much, of course. But if you look at the net cost of acquisitions 
and the share price, and you look at the value add of the last 10 years, it's not great. Mm. And there is an argument in quite a few of those cases that a different approach could yield a better result. And that normally is the preserve of financial engineers to come in and point that out and do something about it. You've also got assets that could be sold or spun off. You can create different divisions looking at what you know, how that's looking at. There's lots of different ways in. So that's one model. The other model, which we're seeing quite a bit of, but still only bits and pieces, but 21st century brand recently sold to a new startup holding company. Uh, I think it's called Common Purpose, but I might have the name slightly wrong. And you can see that's got private equity backing because the idea is instead of buying something, you just put a capital down or get some debt and put some capital in and then put pieces together that will generate the cash and together be worth a much greater multiple than the individual pieces were. Fascinating. Um, said to be another big year for account reviews as well. Someone described it as it's going to be Media Palooza 3 or 4. I can't, I can't remember which one. Do you think it's going to be, you know, a lot of people in agency lands complain about the role of procurement and driving prices down and advertisers not being really interested in the value that agencies provide and you know we hear a lot at our conferences talking about how you know people on the buy side or and the sell side need to actually you know understand the language of the cfo within these organizations a lot better you know to bang that drum about not seeing advertising as a cost to see it as an investment in order to grow sales in a business um what do you what as these reviews happen do you think what what what's going to happen do you think i think there's an awful lot of quite complex ingredients in what you've just pulled out to be honest there's a lot of different strands you could pull out but let's pull up the first bit you you talked about which is purchasing procurement uh, in my experience and i've worked with some of the bigger um, companies around the place. Purchasing per se does not turn up one morning to get a better price. Purchasing when the marketing head says, I want to change, I want to have a look, then purchasing go, we'll come with you. And then they look for their deal. So I was with a client having dinner just before um, Christmas who was uh, working with a, one of the big holding companies. And um, his purchasing guys came to him and said, great news, we've got 10% off. And he went, oh shit, 10% off what? And they went, oh, the rate card. And he went, you idiots, you didn't agree any scope of work, you didn't agree anything else, you just got screwed. And they went, no, 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 we've got 10% off. He went, they'll just add another body and, pay, and make it back. You fuck words, don't do that. Because <laughs> now I'm going to get the less good people, because if it's 10% down, eventually the guy running one office will be incentivized to put people on at lower salary. So he's got less good people. He'll have the same cost because I'll just put more people on purchasing going away. I think he'd done a great deal. So marketing understand that's not a great conversation, um, but they also want some guidance. They want some help from purchasing about what, where to go to. So I think, yes, we do find purchasing discussions are a bit daft sometimes, but the trick on our side is not to moan about that. Everything has to be bought and sold, right? It's really nuts to get uh, upset about it. We had an amazing guy at MDC Partners who'd come from Anheuser-Busch, who were the most aggressive at this, and then he came to our side. And he taught me so much about learn what it is that purchasing is looking for. Test them, find out, ask them. Give them some data and not others. See how they respond. And through that, give them what they need on your terms. Right? 
and then you'll be fine. Because in the end, if you're not stupidly expensive, and we know we're not, we know that with our overheads and the way we operate, we're definitely competitive, then we're going to be able to make money. We just need to work out a way of getting them quickly in the boat moving on. And we're not doing that as an industry. We're still sitting around uh, imagining that everyone can have chauffeur-driven cars and teams of 20 senior managers on them and you know all that crap and traveling business class. Sorry, that's gone. Mm. Don't do that. But find out how you can get the best paid people. Most better be able to go back and say, yeah, you want this guy? He's great, but he's 2,000 a day. Mm. Mm. Right? Or she's 1,500 a day or 3,000 a day or whatever it might be. Do you want them? How much do you want them? Okay, you have them. Now we'll put a few kids on and that's it. There's your budget. That's the conversation, not this um, stress that we go through. Yeah. And I, I really, I've always, covering this industry for a number of years now, I've always really wanted to bring out that side of the conversation in terms of the the positive case for advertising, media, strategy, and these agencies and the value that they can provide because they do. You, you meet enough people in this industry and you talk to incredibly clever, switched yep. on, dynamic people um, who aren't just, you know, singing the old song about the 30-second telly ad when there's so much available to you nowadays. And that's why, you know, we've launched things called strategy leaders where we try and have that conversation on a regular basis. Um, but still, when you when you look at um, how people speak about account reviews, they still talk about, you know, oh, all the advertiser cares about the pricing grids and, you know, squeezing us. And I really hope that that conversation moves on. And, you know, maybe, maybe any marketers listening to this, I mean, I'd be happy to, you know, to talk on background or do a feature about it, or even to be a fly on the wall in the pitch process. I think it'd be fascinating. There are clients that do that, and the answer is don't play with them if you don't like the game. And certainly we don't pitch very much. We tend to try and find people who might be interested in what we sell, start working with them. If they like it, they buy more. And we find that a much happier process, to be honest. Um, And certainly for a company of our size, that's a much better use of of, of our energy because you were everyone ends up paying if you're running a lot of pitches. It's expensive to pitch, isn't well, yeah, it? And given that we've got to make money, that means someone's paying and the only people to pay are the clients. So someone's paying somewhere in the mix, right? So in the end, it doesn't help, help anybody. But sometimes the big ones have to do it because it's the only way to operate it. You know, Otherwise, you have friends of friends and all that kind of crap going on. But one of the fascinating things, I think, was from, from eye-opening for me, and it was quite a long time ago, but um, when I was at, got to Publicis, Hewlett-Packard was our largest client, but it was losing us money or breaking even. and the CEO of HP in Europe in particular, had, he said, oh, you're charging me far too much. And I went, well, I'm actually losing money. So you're going to pitch it, fine. I'm going to repitch it. I want to know what, you know, how much money have you got? And he told me it was about half what he was paying us. I went, okay, if I can get a half, I need you to accept I'm going to, get a, I'm going to cut 60% of my cost because I need to make money. He went, okay, let's work on that. In an 11-way pitch, we won, having been thrown out for being too expensive, of course, we lost half our revenue. It's a huge loss. But we actually added something like 20 million of profit through an intelligent conversation with a guy who was over the moon at the approach. And then, of course, over time, you add it back a bit anyway, because you built a machine that works. We were doing stuff he didn't want. So I think you've got to go into this going, what is he actually valuing? Pay for what you value. The rest, take it out. And that is a problem if you're in a holding company. I was just going to ask that. It's is a that problem. is that particular problem the holding company where yeah. you mentioned you told a good story about improving your bottom line when actually maybe holding companies are more worried about the top. Well, line? yeah, it, it was definitely a difficult conversation back at the ranch. Luckily, it was the first year or two, so you get away with it. But, um, <laughs> uh, it's definitely a difficult conversation, of course, because what do you mean you're losing fifty million out of the revenue line? That's five percent of the total revenue of the operation, and and 
you know, we're supposed to grow 5%, not decline it. So it is a difficult conversation, but you can't fix all the bits at the same time. You have to have a go at it. But it is the disadvantage of public companies, and it's why I think private equity is a more interesting owner of our sector in the longer run. Mm. Because that would be a conversation a private equity firm would understand without even a two-minute discussion. Yeah, I mean, do you think that private equity gets a bad rep, generally? For, you know, flipping, flipping companies, not being interested in the details. And... One thing, a friend of mine put it to me very clearly, who, who's, who, who is extremely close to one of the um, hedge funds uh, chairman. And he said, listen, when I say they're monodimensional, I mean monodimensional. And if you understand that, it's fine. Because you go, there is no emotion. There's no, it's just, did you or did you not? Right? And the great bit about that is, as long as you manage the mono... You can do the rest yourself. Do what you like. Don't care. So as a as an investor in the business, as long as you pre-agreed the stages of that monodimensional delivery, brilliant shareholders. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's let's um, start wrapping up with. Um, you've, you've talked a lot about what you think is going to happen this year. Let's talk about what you think should happen this year. What should be the big thing that happens this year to make this industry better? If we exclude macro factors and we look at industry factors, I think the one thing has to be this thing that has had quite a lot of discussion already about the pitching discussion. The idea that a client who wants to review where they're going takes a year out of their life and their team's life. When you look at it from start to finish, it's a year to run, organize, manage a pitch. You take hundreds of thousands of pounds of payroll out of all the agencies involved. And at the end of it, you eventually appoint someone. The contract takes three months to write, at least, by the way, for these. Um, they can sometimes take six months to write. And then you have about six months left in your job before you're likely to lose it. I can't see that's a great model. And I think we all can see it's a problem. We all talk about it. We don't have a rule not to participate. We just tend not to choose to participate because we can't see the point in it. Um, and we have much, much better results from are much quicker results for our clients and for their CFOs the other way. And why wouldn't you take three projects, give it to three different people who you think are really interesting, and then bet the farm on the one that did best? Seems a much easier model. You also get work for a year uh, rather than no work for a year. And I think if we could fix that, we would change an awful lot of what we're doing. It would drive the margins up and would mean that the incentive for people to service clients better would be much greater because if I serve you well, I'll get more as opposed to I've made a promise that I now can't fulfill because I did it too cheap to a guy or a girl who's now leaving because they've just lost their job. I mean, that that's just nuts, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it reminds me of a piece I wrote years ago. I think this was just before the pandemic where I was, I was throwing out the possibility that in this day and age where you need advertising, marketing, you need lots of different capability – why can't you just have a system where you're working with a greater roster of agencies, to your point, not have them compete against one another, but actually, you know, you want to d different agencies to do different things. And the feedback I had privately from pitch consultants that I spoke to was at the end of the day, you know, big beasts want to sleep with other big beasts. And they, you know, marketing, marketers, they might have a big team around them, but really they just want one agency to do everything for them and just get on with it. I mean, do you think that actually marketing operations need to evolve in order to deliver what you're suggesting? 
I think if they can afford it, then that's very nice. But that client I had dinner with just before Christmas was, because I asked him, why are you still working with these guys? Because, yeah, they used to be good, then they got bought, and now we're 10 years later, and, you know, the work's not there. And he went, and they're complicated and expensive to use. Okay, so I'm not going to use them in the future. Uh Uh-huh. And he's actually about to go to exactly the model you've described. Because I think self-confident marketers established in their jobs who know what they like and are good at what they do are much more happy to do that than the ones who've just taken over. They don't need the politics of everybody going around. They probably need to be seen to have made a big decision that's clear and the rest of it. But it will cost them because there's a lot of waste in that model. And it's just nuts. These marketers, they, they hang around for like a year and then they're gone. It's nuts. I can't. I mean, the, the number of times you, you see a pitch run and then the person's gone before it's even enacted. Uh, sorry, the, the results have been, you know, the, the work has come out after the pitch. Yeah. And, and then, so the next person turns up and inherits something where there's probably a price value issue because someone promised it to get a deal to get purchasing to mm-hmm. sign off on it. Because mm-hmm. thinking, my team aren't very good, so I'll go cheap. Right, which is what happens when you don't have a great agency. And that is back to why uh, Yannick bought Uncommon and why people like us exist. Because if you have a cool bunch of people who know what they're doing, we're not very expensive compared to the total mix. We're really, really cheap. Mm. And that makes a huge difference to the total mix. Mm. So why not have them? Mm. So what's Rankin's grand plan? Is he going to sell this agency or you know, are you going to become the next... Whatever, whatever paradigm you're aiming for. What's the, what's the grand plan? Well, very simply, we, we think that there is a model, this model is relevant globally. Um, I've lived and worked globally. Rankin's work runs globally. Uh, we have a lot of te- people in the team who are international players. A lot of our clients are international. So we definitely see the advantage of a, of a Kentish Town, West Coast America tie-up. Uh, Rankin's going to spend the next couple of months in LA. Uh, he's shooting a TV show anyway, so he's over there. And we're going to explore that. We're open to investors to help us grow faster because we now have a model that works. We've got a team that works. We've got some great client stories. So we're, we're taking on that path. We have no desire to stop. We both want to see a long, exciting future, but we would like uh, to grow it faster. So that might require a bit of investment and certainly require some geographic ad. Mm, interesting. Mm. Watch the space, I suppose. Um, and we're asking everyone that we interviewed this year because we thought it's a really important question. Why are you passionate about media? When I thought of that question, because I heard you've been asking this question, um, I was reminded that revolutionaries seek to control the police, the media, and the schools. And I didn't want to be a policeman or a school teacher, so the other one is the interesting one. (laughs) And if you believe in change, you believe in enacting, bringing things forward in society, culture, whatever it might be, then you want to be in one of those. And I think the media is the most exciting one, so that's why I'm here. Yeah, and it's very reflective of society as well because um, you know, all the things that we talk about every day, every week on the media leader, audience fragmentation, privacy, bombardment, transparency, all of these issues, they're they're very reflective of society at large. It's fascinating. I mean, yeah, it's 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 a good one. Um I didn't know that you wanted to take over as a revolutionary though. <laughs> I don't know if you want to take over, but if you want to have an impact and have a meaning to what you do. Richard Pinder is CEO of Ranking Creative. Thanks very much for coming on the Media Leader Podcast. Thanks very much, Emma. Nice to be with you. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. 
You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time. <laughs>